geopolitics and empire is joined by renaissance man gonzalo lira gonzalo is a chilean american author filmmaker journalist financial blogger youtuber coach red pill and many have been following his commentary on his gonzalo lira youtube channel over the past months regarding the ukraine situation good to have you on geopolitics and empire gonzalo it's a pleasure being on thank you for having me now, there are a few themes I wanted to get your thoughts on. And again, feel free to freestyle. But, uh, you know, one of the themes is the U.S., NATO, EU, Ukraine, Russia, World War Three situation, this sort of great reset situation where governments seem to be both collapsing and clamping down on their citizens, especially in the West. And something you talked about in the video, I think you did almost a year ago. Um, I, I want to talk about that, where you were telling Westerners to, quote, leave now while you can, uh, end quote. And so... Maybe we could start with the Ukraine situation and how how you would summarize what exactly has been and is going on and your sort of big picture view on what Ukraine is all about, you know, this this confrontation between the between the east and the west. Yeah, my thinking is that uh it's not about Ukraine. Okay? What's really going on is that the United States uh power has eroded to such an extent that the people in a position of leadership realize what's going on realize that their perch is slipping very quickly. Uh, the American uh, domestic economic situation is catastrophic. Uh, the over-indebtedness is the problem. Uh, also, the years of excess uh, uh, deficit spending. It, it, it's just the, the American power is collapsing. Therefore, the American military, uh, the, the American political position globally is collapsing. And so instead of trying to have a, a graceful uh, uh, come down and try to and become just one more of a series of great powers around the world, the American leadership has decided that they are going to try to pull down the other emerging great powers, which are specifically and in order China, Russia, and Iran. And uh, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State of the United States under Donald Trump, he recently gave a big speech that's very, very important called the Three Lighthouses speech, the Three Lighthouses of Liberty. And he identified those three lighthouses of liberty as Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, and that the United States had to defend these three countries at all costs. Now, of course, what's going on here is that uh, these three countries, the antagonists of, the three, of these three countries, are uh, Russia, Iran, and China, respectively. And so the idea outlined by Pompeo, but really something that the, the, the deep state, the entrenched bureaucracy, call it what you will, but the people who are in positions of leadership in the United States, what they want to do is that they want to see uh, these three great nations, Russia, Iran, and China, be degraded so that the United States maintains its dominant position. And the Ukraine war is a proxy war. Uh, the United States and its Western European allies, allies, vassals, really, provoked the Ukrainians, or, or goaded, rather, the Ukrainians into provoking the Russians. And, uh, you know, the, the Russians finally decided, you know, it's time that we uh, straighten out this whole Ukraine situation once and for all. And they invaded. It wasn't without provocation. Anybody who knows what's been going on over the last eight years, ever since the uh, the coup d'etat of 2014 will realize that uh, the West has been goading Ukraine into provoking Russia. And finally, Russia realized we have to act now. And they did. And they acted very decisively. And they're clearly winning this war. 
And uh, a lot of people have been in denial, but it's very clear to anybody who's been serious about analyzing the situation that the Russians have had the upper hand since at least mid-April, and they are definitely going to win this thing. Uh, one could argue that they had the upper hand from actually the second day after the start of the special military operation because of how the Russians pretty much destroyed um, the, the Ukraine's uh, 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 missile defense and air defense systems and degraded them to such an extent that it basically allowed the Russians to do whatever they wanted, uh, which is what they've been doing insofar as the air is concerned. But uh, it's just quibbles at this point. When it became really, really obvious that the Russians were definitely going to win this, and it was no longer an issue of if but when, was in early May. That was two months ago. And it takes a while to clear out all of these defenses and degrade the Ukraine armed forces. But just because something takes a while doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Okay, A lot of people have thought, oh, the Russians aren't advancing as quickly as they should, but that, that's just silly talk. That's just coping. Because the truth is, you know, the, the Russians were going to win. And like I said, it was clear, more sophisticated observant. In my own case, I thought really from mid-March that it was clear that the Russians were going to win. And slowly the evidence accumulated. And I said so. I said so. I said so from the beginning that, you know, the Russians, they just had a bigger military. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is now people are realizing it. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again. Financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Themes include securing your Plan B bug-out location, banking offshore, reducing your tax burden legally, storing precious metals, getting another passport, and more. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. And don't forget to fund geopolitics and empire. You can leave a donation, accept on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. And the longer this war goes on, the more pointless it is, all the death and misery that is going to be inflicted on the people of Ukraine because of Washington. Washington has basically made it very clear to the Kiev regime of Zelensky and his goons, because they are goons, because they are fascists, they are you know just pieces of shit, that they have to fight to the last Ukrainian. And the last Ukrainian man, woman, and child has to die in order to, quote-unquote, weaken Russia. Of course, this is not weakening Russia by any stretch of the imagination. And on the contrary, it's strengthening Russia because the Russian people are more and more on board with this, more and more behind Vladimir Putin, more and more realizing that the United States and Western Europe wants to destroy Russia, break it up, carve it up, steal all of its natural resources, uh, the Americans have said this openly. And so the Russians have finally realized, oh, yeah, it's true. It's not propaganda. And so that's why they are more united than ever. Uh, you know, Russia is is winning this thing, not just on the battlefield, but also internally. 
they're getting over the fact that they don't have Zara clothing or BMW cars because, you know, you can live without some name brand clothes and some name brand car, but you can't live without food. You can't live without oil. You can't live without heating gas, which is what's happening to Europe, you know? And so the, the Russians are realizing, you know, screw the Europeans. We're going to go on our own and we're going to win this. And they are winning it. And so the Russian, the Americans rather, now they're realizing, well, we have to pivot. And with this visit by Joe Biden to the Middle East, it's clear that the new pivot is they're going to try to start up a war with Iran. They also want to start a war with China, but they're scared of China with good reason. And so they're figuring, well, you know, it's not working out for us with Russia. It's clear. Even though we're sending them weapons and money, the Ukrainians are really losing against the Russians, and it's only just a matter of time. So where can we stir up trouble? And now they're looking at the Middle East. And of course, if there's a war in the Middle East between Israel and Iran, which is what the Biden administration seems hell-bent on, on, on pursuing, this will mean that there won't be oil flowing through the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. And this, of course, would mean that if you're paying $5, $6 per gallon, if there's a war in the Middle East, you're going to wind up paying $20 to the gallon, assuming that there's any gasoline to begin with. See, and this is the policy that the Americans are pursuing, and they're pursuing it out of hubris, out of pride, out of a desire to be, you know, America number one, instead of realizing that, you know, Americans' days of the, the unipolar world is over. America's days of global hegemony are over. And they should, the Americans should accept a graceful, draw down and focus on internal problems. But instead of focusing on internal problems, and the United States has a plethora of internal problems, they're focusing on stirring up trouble and fighting a war, figuring that if they fight a war and win it, then America will be back on top. They don't understand that if there's a war, there will be only casualties. And American power will be the principal casualty of any war. You've said that in a recent video that it's easy to see how this all ends. Uh, and as you mentioned, Russia seems to be doing just fine. And so I wanted to get your thought a bit more on the detail of how this all um, ends. The, the end game, like do the breakaway republics, uh, they become independent or, or, or part of Russia. And, um, you know, this we keep hearing this talk of World War Three. I think there are some psychopaths in Washington and Brussels that would mm -hmm. uh, would launch. World War Three. I think they're the ones. Um, the, the threat comes from them, not from um, Moscow. And uh, maybe it's just scaremongering the, the, this hype of World War Three. But how do you think this all ends in Ukraine? And uh, how do you see the threat of World War Three nuclear war? Well, I, th I think that um, y you see. I, I actually discussed this with a friend of mine just before hopping on here with this with you on this call. So I, I, I have a fairly clear idea of what I think would happen. If the United States loses in some military exchange and loses dramatically, that's when I think that the United States would be the one to use nuclear weapons first. For instance, if, say, a nuclear aircraft carrier were to be sunk by China or Russia or Iran, the, the humiliation of that would be so great that the current leadership in the United States would say, you know, 
let's show them that let, let, let's show them that they didn't get the best of us. Let's show them that we're America number one. And let's like use a tactical nuke on them. You know, just one, just a little bit, just a tip, just to see how it feels kind of thing, right? And uh, of course, once you use a nuclear weapon, there's no going back. And, and th there's no end to the escalation. And you say, oh, we just used a tactical nuke. It's no big deal. There's no reason to escalate. But that's not how somebody else would look at that. You're opposing number in such a confrontation. If you use a tactical nuclear weapon against them, they're going to say, you used a nuke on me. Fuck you. I'm going to use a nuke on you. And I'm going to nuke one of your cities. Not a military base like you nuked my military base. No, I'm going to nuke a city of yours. LA, New York, Chicago. How you like them apples? And after that, you know, it just spirals out of control. And so my fear, my original fear was that the Americans, NATO, would get involved in Ukraine and the Russians would beat the ever-living shit out of them. Because something that in the United States, they just don't want to accept, but it's the truth. The Russian military is superior to the American military. Vastly superior. I mean, light years. They're just better soldiers. Look, I've said this before. Um, you know, the Italians, they're good at food. And the French are good at fashion. The Russians, they're good at war. That's their thing, okay? When they decide to go to war, they're really, really good. They don't lose. And that's a fact. And so, insofar as the, the current uh, confrontation, originally I was extremely worried that um, the, the United States would put NATO troops in Ukraine the Russians would deal with them decisively, probably with some uh, cruise-guided missile attack that would wipe them out, and the Americans would escalate from there, and all of a sudden you have this nuclear exchange. But what happened was that the Americans started assembling forces at a base called Yaroviv. Um, excuse me, Yavoriv. I always mix up the pronunciation. Yavoriv. Y-A-V-O-R-I-V. It's a little town to the um, west of Lviv in western Ukraine. Uh, Yavoriv is about, I think it's about 20 miles from the border with Poland, okay? I mean, it's right next door to the border. And it's the place where um, the Americans had all their foreign fighters. Because uh, Yavoriv is, for all intents and purposes, a NATO training base. That's where NATO... Um, instructors would go, American instructors, American generals would go to train Ukraine fighting forces over the past eight years, because people don't know this, but the Americans were training the Ukrainian army to the tune of about 10 to 15,000 troops per year. Um, and that might not seem like a lot, but over eight years, you know, it adds up. Roughly 60,000 uh, Ukrainian troops were NATO trained. NATO trained in terms of tactics, in terms of um, operations, communications, command and control, the whole shebang. The Ukrainian Armed Forces was the largest and best trained NATO army, even though it didn't carry the name of NATO. People don't seem to understand that. And see, this extremely well-trained, extremely well-equipped army has not lasted six months against the Russians. You know? <laughs> We're five months into this war, right? And it's a miracle that the Ukraine army is still standing because they are collapsing. They are collapsing left and right. They are losing over a thousand men a day 
killed in action, a thousand men a day. And this is confirmed numbers over the last two days. Okay. And reasonable ex estimates, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> reasonable ex estimates say that the Ukrainians have been losing something like between 350 and 700 soldiers per day over the last uh, 45 to 60 days. It's been a catastrophe for the Ukrainians. This was the best NATO army that was fielded, and they got wiped out by the Russians. But the key thing, the thing that made the Americans, the Pentagon, freak out and decide not to put NATO troops on the ground, American troops in, in Ukraine, was what happened in early March in uh, Yavodiv, in this uh, base that I was mentioning. If you'll recall, the Russians sent a swarm of cruise missiles to this town in early March. I, I forget the exact date. I, I want to say something around like the 7th of March, but I could be wrong. It's not important. You can look it up. And in this attack, they killed over 500 uh, NATO soldiers, foreign soldiers, you know, people from different uh, countries who had been gathering there. It was basically a NATO force that was gathering to go and fight the Russians. And they were gathering them there. That was the staging area. And they got hit by the swarm of Russian cruise missiles. And not only were the soldiers hit, but also their gear. Roughly $400 million worth of gear was destroyed in that one night attack. It was in, in like three in the morning. They got hit by the swarm of missiles. And over 500 men were killed. Over $400 million worth of gear was destroyed. And what freaked out the Pentagon, I mean, just sent them into a complete tailspin, was that they didn't see these missiles coming. See, they had no warning. The missiles were stealthy and the Russians had such dominance insofar as air defense and jamming that the Pentagon and all its satellites and all of its equipment and all of its eyes on Ukraine, it did not see these missiles coming until they hit. And the thing is, these, these missiles were hit, were, were fired rather, from over 400 kilometers away. And that told the Pentagon, if we go in hard, they will hit us and they will kill us. And that's why the Pentagon decided not to go into Ukraine. And they've been vehement about it. And you, you hear periodically them saying, oh, we have to do these uh, no-fly zones and we have to put boots on the ground. And, and that talk is all, always dies fairly quickly. It's because the Pentagon knows that the United States military cannot go head-to-head -head against the Russian military. They simply can't. And if they do, they'll lose. And they'll lose catastrophically. Okay? And that, paradoxically... Uh, that knowledge on the part of the Pentagon of them knowing that they would lose so catastrophically prevented them from going in and prevented an even bigger loss because 500 men is a disaster, but a lot of them were foreigners. They were from different NATO countries and also from countries from South America. Uh, they were all NATO under the NATO aegis, okay? But they were not American troops. Some of them were it's, it's believed, but it's not confirmed, that a lot of them were uh, private, American private military contractors who had been hired by the Pentagon and State Department to help in this initial staging. It's always good to have private military contractors because of deniability, of course, right? Uh, it was not U.S. Armed Forces people, you know, active service Americans there. 
But it gave the Pentagon a taste of what could happen, a complete disaster. And that's why the Pentagon has been adamant about not putting boots on the ground in Ukraine, not putting American aircraft over Ukraine, because they know what will happen. And because of this deterrence that happened early in the war, this prevented an escalation, because if the Americans had gone in hard with a lot of gear, a lot of personnel, and all of a sudden the Russians had done the same hit, but say in April, and had hit you know, a couple of thousand American troops, then that would have led to an escalation with even more troops and potential nuclear weapons. And the fact that the Russians essentially nipped this in the bud prevented an escalation that could have gone nuclear. But insofar as China and Taiwan is concerned, well, if the Americans keep on provoking the Chinese, the Chinese might strike back hard enough, say sinking an aircraft carrier, that the humiliation would be so great that the Biden administration would have no choice but to escalate. And the only way to escalate after they sink one of your aircraft carriers is to use a nuclear weapon. See, ultimately, the crazy people are not in Moscow. The crazy people are not in Beijing. The crazy people are not in Tehran. The crazy people are in Washington. They want a war so badly and, and they are so unable to face any kind of defeat that they could potentially push the world into a nuclear war in order to avoid the humiliation. And you have to understand what's going on. You have to understand the insanity of American leadership. These people are insane. They are war criminals. Their, the actions that they have already committed qualify them as war criminals. How they have egged on the Ukrainian armed forces to fire missiles at civilian targets, purely civilian targets, strictly to terrorize civilians and goad the Russians into doing things that would uh, uh, hurt their position in Ukraine. This is what the Ukraine armed forces are doing here, and they are being goaded by Washington. And so you have to understand that in this story, the bad guys are the Americans. They're the villains. They're the ones who have caused this situation. You have to understand that if you understand anything of what's going on in the world, it's the Americans who are lashing out because the American empire is going down the tubes and the people in American leadership cannot accept that reality. And so they are starting, they are trying to start a war so as to somehow recapture the former glory of the United States that is gone forever. That's what's going on. We've met the enemy and the enemy is us, uh, both of us being uh, uh, Americans. And I want to get your thoughts on, well, since you were mentioning NATO, but also EU, Europe, I've interviewed a number of European intellectuals <laughs> such as Thierry Maison and, and uh, Gay, Guy Metan and uh, both of them were saying that the consequence of all of this is going to be the total collapse of, of Europe, the EU, that Washington is trying to uh, prevent strategic autonomy of the EU and to keep it under Washington's, uh, the empire, American empire's wing as a vassal. But also we can see yep. econom economically, politically, the whole EU project seems to be collapsing. There's There have even be, been uh, white papers I read some years ago predicting the total collapse of the EU, you know, by 2030, 2035, uh, what do you think will be the consequences for Europe? Well, the, Euro the Europeans are fools, 
Okay, because when they set up the European Union and the Eurozone, that's when they seal their fate. Because these different countries have different priorities. And if you try to unify them into a single block, uh, they'll be easily dominated by the Americans. Because you see, if you have a bunch of European countries, then it's basically like trying to wrangle cats. You can never really do it. Okay. But if you have one European block and the European block from Brussels whips all of the small European countries in line and gets them on the same page, and you, as the Americans, control the people in Brussels, well, you, you see what happened. The European Union was a mechanism by which the Americans could control and dominate the entire European continent. And they whipped the smaller countries in line. Uh, from Brussels, but at Washington's direction. Mm -hmm. And the European project is over. Look, Europe is dead. Demographically, uh, there aren't going to be any Germans by the end of the century. There will be no more ethnic Germans. You just have to look at uh, the demographics. The, the children being born in Germany today are not ethnic German children. They are foreign children. The same thing is happening in the United Kingdom. Three times more uh, children of immigrants are being born in the UK than ethnic British children. Ethnic British being English, Welsh, Scottish, and Irish, Protestant and Catholic. Four, uh, three times more foreign-born children, foreign children, children of foreign-born migrants. And the same thing is happening in France, same in Italy. Europe demographically is dead. It's over. It's a dying continent. It has a great deal of power and riches, but it's being overrun and taken over by immigrants who share absolutely nothing in terms of the culture and the mentality of the local populations. They have not become integrated, on the contrary. And the Europeans have only themselves to blame for this disaster. It was their fault, their leadership's fault. And it's because they allied themselves to the Americans and what's best for the United States was not necessarily what was best for Europe as a continent or for uh, what was best for each of the European nations individually. But they decided that they wanted this globalism. They wanted this deindustrialization. They got greedy. And also they felt so cosmopolitan and so aristocratic welcoming these poor little migrant people. And, and they, they, they welcomed the migrants with such arrogance and hubris and not understanding that these people are there to replace them and that it's their own fault. Uh, I have no sympathy for the Europeans, to tell you the truth. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I have German roots. Uh, you know, my maternal grandmother was uh, German and my other maternal grandmother was half German, you know, and um, I've lived in Europe. I've lived in London and Paris and Amsterdam and Germany. Um, you know, I, 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 I love Europe, but the European people are to blame for the hole that they are in. And this winter is going to be the worst winter in, it's going to be the worst winter since 45. This is uh, what is about to hit Europe is a disaster. And what's interesting is that the people who are going to riot the most are probably going to be the immigrants because the immigrants didn't sign up to spend a cold European winter without heat, without electricity. They didn't sign up for this, but that's what's going to happen. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the migrant population, the immigrant population, these people from the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa, 
how they're going to react to all of a sudden this Europe that they thought was, you know, streets are paved in gold and land of milk and honey, how they are going to react to the sudden fact that that Europe is poor. It's broke. And and, German industry is broken because of this uh, uh, idiotic sanctions war with the Russians. I mean, think of it this way. You supply me with oxygen. I decide to get in a fight with you and cut off all relationships to with you. Do you think that you're not going to hurt me with the oxygen that you are supplying? Of course you are. I mean, come on. These dumb Europeans became completely dependent on Russian energy. Trump warned them about this years ago, back in uh, 2017 at the United Nations. And the German delegation to the UN openly laughed and mocked Trump. And he was right. I'm not endorsing Donald Trump. I think he was a fool in many regards. But he was absolutely right about what the Germans were doing. They were putting themselves in the position of being owned by the Russians. And the Germans, out of this weird hubris of not understanding the reality of the situation, decided, hey, we're going to sanction the Russians who are supplying us with these basic resources that we cannot find anywhere else. We're going to sanction them. We're going to go to economic war of attrition with the Russians. I mean, how stupid can you get? I Look, uh, see, I blame the Europeans for this hole that they're in. I have no sympathy for them. European bros, you know, I'm very sorry, but you were the idiots who allowed this to happen. You're just going to have to uh, put up with it and deal with it and go cold uh, in the winter and go without electricity in the winter and go without food in the winter. It's your own fault, you fools. That's all I have to say about the poor Europeans. I I would uh, agree with you. And I'm I'm sitting here in Croatia now, and I've been considering I'm going to be here for a while, but I, I think, as you said, before the winter, I'm probably going to have to hightail it back to uh, Mexico. And I wanted to discuss your leave now while you can video, because I think it's very uh, important. And it's what you said in that video is what I have been thinking for 15 plus years. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, been, I've been contemplating this collapse of the American empire. Uh, you warned for Westerners to leave the West. I mean, we're talking about the yeah. Anglo Anglo American sphere: Australia, New Zealand, um, European countries, certain European countries, Canada, U.S. Yeah. And I, I sensed, you know, in the two thousands, that the West would collapse, degenerate culturally, uh, economically decline, politically, meaning become totalitarian. And as yeah. an American myself, you know, I'm born in the U.S., but I'm experiencing now, like last, I, I was trying to make a business of this podcast, monetize it, you know, uh, and, you know, last year, Patreon, the platforms me uh, in April, I believe it was the, actually the Department of Homeland Security, which took banned me from PayPal because the same week they created the Disinformation Governance Board, Mint Press, Consortium News, uh, and myself were banned for life from PayPal and on and on these examples. And, and, we're, and then we've got these like COVID lockdowns and then people's bank accounts being shut. And it's like, really, the mask is coming off and we're going full totalitarian in the West, which is just, it's like, I knew it was coming, but it's still shocking to watch it happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can, you know, can you kind of uh, give your further thoughts on, on what's happening to the Western world? Well, yeah, it's, it's real simple. See, um, 
the, the, the people who are in leadership positions now are realizing that the whole ship is collapsing, that's sinking. And so they are lashing out. This isn't complicated. It's not like it, it, it's it's you have to understand these people who are in positions of leadership, they did not earn the power that they are wielding. They inherited it and they inherited it. They got this power by credentials, by jumping through hoops, by pleasing the right people, by playing the political game. And now they have this power and they see this power is slipping through their fingers. And so they're lashing out. It's not complicated. You have to think of it like a uh, trust fund baby. You know, some guy whose parents were very rich in some business or other, and he inherits a big trust fund with a lot of money, and he just spends it and spends it and has a high old time. And then all of a sudden, he starts looking at the trust fund and realizing, holy cow, I'm running out of money. And he starts lashing out. Uh, that's, that's what's going on. These people inherited a whole bunch of power and a whole bunch of wealth, and they mismanaged it and threw it away. And all of a sudden now they're lashing out. And of course, who does a trust fund baby hate the most? The guy who says, I told you so. See, the more truth you say, the more they're going to lash out at you, the more they're going to punish you punitively. I mean, uh, you know, they say that they're against disinformation. Okay. You know, on YouTube, on, on different uh, websites and stuff, I see all this information about the flat earthers, people who believe that the earth is flat. Now, that's just nonsense. The earth is not flat. It's, it's, it's a sphere. And you can argue that it's not quite a perfect sphere. It's slightly oblong because of the spin of the earth and blah, blah. But it's roughly spherical. There is no such thing as a flat earth. That is just nonsense. And you don't see them getting deplatformed now, do you? Why? Why aren't they deplatformed? I mean, they're peddling misinformation, grotesque misinformation, and they're, they're claiming that the science is wrong, that the Earth is not uh, a sphere, but rather it's a flat disk. This is the height of scientific uh, misinformation, disinformation, but they're not getting deplatformed. Why? Because they don't matter, because flat Earthers are just fools, okay? And they don't matter. And what they're saying is just so much nonsense that the uh, authorities, the people in charge of the tech companies, they're never going to demonetize those channels, the flat earth ch channels. They're never going to demonetize them because what they are peddling is obviously unimportant. They are only going to deplatform and demonetize those people who are telling truths that the people in power don't want to hear. You see? That's why you, the, the, the flat earth channels on YouTube have all the monetization in the world. But people who question, for instance, the COVID narrative, who question, for instance, the efficacy of the vaccines, who question whether Ukraine is actually winning this war, who question some random uh, so-called massacre that turns out to be the complete opposite of what is claimed. I'm not going to go into the specifics because I don't want to get you into trouble, but you know, the, that suburb outside of Kiev where there was a massacre and it's all so much bullshit and it's exactly the opposite of what they say it is. And if you even mention that you get deplatformed and you get to a heap of trouble because it's happened to me. I'm telling you, man, the more truth you tell, the more they deplatform you, the more 
they persecute you because they don't want to face the truth because they're the trust fund baby that is losing all of its money, all of its power. It's freaking out. It's lashing out. And the best way to, to, uh, to, to no longer hear the criticism is to silence the criticism. And that's what's going on. Simple as that. Yeah, I totally uh, agree and just wanted to get your thought on what this further might look like as the months and years go on. My biggest fear, the threat that I see is this, I mean, you know, it's like the great reset and the green agenda. The green agenda is like this death sentence, right? Turn off yeah, all of the food. Yeah. It's like a global uh, holodomor. Turn off the, all the food, yeah. uh, energy, everyone freezes to death, wipe out the middle class. Yeah. Um, and then this neo-techno feudalism of this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the vaccine passport, which essentially I see it's the social credit system they want to implement in all countries. Well, and, and I've seen yeah, it in Kazakhstan. I've seen it in yeah, it's even worse than yeah, it's even worse than that because what's going to happen is that see with with a, with a uh, vaccine passport, it doesn't really matter about the vaccine. What happens is that you're forced to have this kind of digital account, and they'll give you digital currency, but then this digital currency won't work if you don't buy the things that they want you to buy. See, when I have like a hundred dollars in my pocket, I can use it to spend whatever I want. I can pay for schooling if I want. I can pay to buy a car. I can pay uh, my hundred bucks to buy drugs or pornography or flowers or anything. But with digital currency, they can fix it so that you can buy some things, but not other things. And they can control how you spend your money. And therefore, your money is not really your money. Or let me phrase it, you're not really free to spend your money. You can only buy the things that the government tells you to buy that the experts tell you to buy, irrespective of whether you need it or not. And if you say something that they don't like, maybe they'll decide that, hey, you know, you used to have some money, but nothing more. You know, your money is no good, literally. And you can't buy food, for instance. That'll happen. Of course it will, because if, you, if some organization, some government, some corporation has a power, they will inevitably use it. You don't have a power if you don't intend to use it. And of course, if you use a power, it's inevitable that it will be abused, especially when it's a power that is so dramatic and so tempting and so easy because, you know, it's so easy to simply flip a switch and you or me or anybody can no longer, no longer has any money and we can no longer buy food. It's so easy, and that's why it's going to be so tempting. And that's coming, okay? Don't pretend otherwise. It's coming. It's inevitable. The, and the thing I see, people keep saying, oh, Trump will come back. No, he won't. And even if he did, he's not going to do a damn thing because he didn't do a damn thing the last time. He was a loser. I mean, really, he didn't do anything. He talked a lot, but didn't actually do anything. And, you know, there is no one who will save us. We have to save ourselves, okay? Because look now, for instance, in the United Kingdom, the, the Brits, you know, they, they're getting rid of uh, Boris Johnson, even though he's still at number 10 Downing Street. And you have all these other people running for his office, you know, the, the conservative leadership. And they're all the same. They're, they're all cut from the same cloth. They're all losers. They're all globalists. None of them are going to fix the problems. And they might give pretty speeches, but all those pretty speeches are just lies. And you know they're not going to do anything. <laughs> they're just not going to do anything. And so you know it's 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 a disaster. 
And there is no solution. There's no solution except perhaps revolution. I mean, and, and I think that we're, I think we might have a civil war, an open civil war. And I think that what's going on in Holland in particular, in the Netherlands, is very, very important. We got to keep an eye on that because that might be the bleeding edge of a civil war in the West. And uh, yeah, because it looks like the leadership class that we have is just, we have to get rid of them because they, they are no longer leading the people. They are actively going against the people and trying to hurt the people, it seems to me. And I, I agree with your sentiment. I, and people have called me like black pill, uh, cynical, pessimistic. And I just feel like the only thing we can do is uh, brace for impact in Mexico. I've gotten so many calls and emails, even some of my uh podcast guests after the fact have been uh, inquiring uh, about coming to uh mexico and in, in your video you said to, you said to flee to countries that don't have the resources to implement this uh digital yeah. dictatorship uh you, you mentioned mexico as as one place you know wh where would wh where i mean well I, i think that the best places in the world are probably bolivia and paraguay because they're poor and backward but there's lots of food Uh, people are nice, low tech, you know, nobody's going to hassle you in those countries, you know, nice little poor countries in the middle of nowhere. Because like, for instance, Africa, I thought that Africa might be a good place. But you know, if there's a big uh, problem with food supply, Africa would be the worst place in the world to be. But like, there's never going to be a food problem in Paraguay. Paraguay is a net food exporter. Uh, I, I think the same with Bolivia. They've got plenty. And so I think that those two countries would be great. And like I said, they're, they're poor enough and out of the way enough that nobody's going to hassle you. Uh, also, they have, you know, good vibes towards any Westerner. Like in, in the Middle East, you know, there are a lot of people who really hate Westerners because of what the Americans have done. That would be a bad place to go. But like Paraguay, Bolivia, um, nice, quiet, boring, out of the way. I think that you could do very well there if you really want to get out. And of course, they're incredibly cheap. So those might be good countries off the top of my head. Um, you know, some of the smaller countries in, in Central America, Guatemala, um, Belize, Costa Rica. Costa Rica might be with a lot of Americans, too many Americans perhaps. But I mean, if you really want to get away and if you're totally mobile insofar as, you know, being able to do your work via Internet from wherever, I, I think that Paraguay and Bolivia are your best bet, not Argentina. Argentina is um, has all kinds of social problems, and uh, and they'll steal from you. Um, and and Chile has just implemented like the dumbest constitution ever. Uh, Chile is going to be a basket case over the next five to ten years. I mean, they had it so good for thirty odd years after the Pinochet dictatorship, but they decided to scrap the constitution that had been imposed on them by Pinochet. And, and rebuild from scratch, and they are totally screwing it up. I'm from Chile, so I know what I'm talking about. I, I'd, I'd stay away from Chile. Uh, I, you know, Peru, Peru, maybe, maybe not. It depends on the city, okay? Uh, Lima is always sketchy, but some of the cities out, outside of Lima, Arequipa and so forth, yeah, very nice. Um, Ecuador is a basket case, and it'll always be a basket case, and it's kind of dangerous. I lived in Ecuador, so I know more or less what I'm talking about. Uh, Venezuela and Colombia, they're always dangerous. People are very violent there. I would not consider it a good place to go, a safe place to go. I, Guyana's, I, I do not have an opinion. I, I don't know enough information. 
Brazil, Brazil has complicated issues. Um, and again, I, I wouldn't know enough to be able to give a definitive opinion. But Bolivia and Paraguay, great places to go. Uruguay, yes, but it's more expensive, you know. But Paraguay, yeah, it's very tempting. Also, Panama. Panama is always going to be a great place, but it's a little bit expensive. But Panama is always a great place because of the canal. It's always going to be important. It's always going to be someplace that is relatively stable. So, yeah. Yeah, you you mentioned Eastern Europe as well. I think I think you're in Ukraine now. I mean, are you going to stay yeah. there, or are, are you planning oh, yeah. to hightail it at some point out of Ukraine? No, I have a, a an escape plan if things get really dicey here. Um, but what I can say is that, yeah, of course, I didn't anticipate this war. I uh, nobody did, uh, and also now I understand why the war happened because I was now I, I'm aware of information that I was not privy to before. Because people do not know, but now it's become very clear that the uh, Zelensky regime and the Ukrainian armed forces were preparing to invade the Donbass, and they were preparing to potentially attack Russia. And the proof of this is that, you see, in eastern Ukraine, the Russians are fighting the entire, or the bulk, rather, of the Ukrainian armed forces. Well, why were they there? Because what's coming out is that the Ukrainians were preparing an offensive. They were going to invade the Donbass and retake the breakaway republics and potentially even cross the border into Russia. And there are indications that they even intended to get to Crimea and take Crimea. And so basically the Russians beat them to the punch. This invasion appears to have been scheduled for early mid-March. And the Russian invasion happened, of course, on the 24th of February. And this is information that I did not know before the fact, and I learned after the fact. And this seems pretty, pretty, pretty certain that this is what was going on. The Russians beat the Ukrainians to the punch because the Ukrainians were planning on invading. That's why they had assembled the bulk of their forces. That's why all of their elite forces were in eastern Ukraine. And that's why now the... Russian armed forces with the uh, militias of the Donbass and Lugansk, uh, excuse me, of Donetsk and Lugansk are grinding away and they have succeeded in destroying the uh, Ukrainian armed forces because they were all massed there, ready to invade. See, and this, of course, I did not know when I made my video, which I made in October, by the way, October of 2021. And uh, yeah, I thought that Eastern Europe would be the future. And I still believe this. Uh, I think that this war will end. As for the reasons I mentioned before, it does not seem that it will widen, and the Russians will uh, eventually take over the entire country, all of Ukraine. This is inevitable. And to those people who are on the Ukrainian side, I don't mean any disrespect. I'm just looking at the military reality. The military reality is very clear that the Russians will win in the Donbass. I mean, they're, they're almost there. Uh, they, they are about to hit Kramatorsk, and Kramatorsk might well turn out to be nothing more than a speed bump in the Russians' advance. And after the Kramatorsk line, there's absolutely nothing until Dnepropetrovsk and the Dnepro River. And so it seems clear to me that the Russians are going to take all of eastern Ukraine, everything east of the Dnepro River. And if you look at a map of Ukraine, the Dnepro River cuts the country in half in a diagonal line running uh, from the northwest to the southeast before it turns slightly um, 90 degrees 
just before uh, um, the Crimean Isthmus. And the point is that, see, the Russians are going to take all of Eastern Ukraine. They're going to keep it, all of it. Uh, and that includes the city I'm currently in, Kharkov. I'm in the middle of Kharkov. Uh, and the shelling is going out on outside the city. I don't think that the Russians are going to assault the city. It would take them too many soldiers. Um, what they're going to do is what they have done repeatedly, which is to um, go around big cities and engage with the defenders and slowly degrade them with relentless artillery barrages until the defenders just give up and they retreat and they give up the city, which is what they've been doing with Lysychansk, um, Papasnaya before that, and what they're going to do now with um, Kramatorsk, you know, and, and the Russians are going to win. And they're going to, once they have captured the entire country, which they will, they're going to take it apart. They're going to take it apart and they're going to take the south and the east and they're going to keep it for themselves. And people say that there's going to be a great battle in Odessa. I don't think so. I think that what will happen is that the Russians will surround Odessa, which they can easily do once they have broken through Kramatorsk. And they will surround it and they just wait because Odessa is a very important city for the Russians for spiritual and historic reasons. And so they want Odessa and they will capture it. But they have no intention of assaulting it and potentially, you know, harming it or even destroying it. They have no intention of doing that. And what they'll do is they'll simply surround it and wait and wait out the defenders. And eventually the defenders will have to surrender because the rest of the country will surrender. And um, the Zelensky regime can no longer negotiate a peace, even if they wanted to, which they don't. The Zelensky regime wants to keep on fighting to the last Ukrainian. Uh, they are under orders, of course, from Washington. The Washington establishment that controls the Zelensky regime has ordered them to keep on fighting to the last Ukrainian, which they will do. And so there will be no negotiation. But even if the Ukrainian regime, the Zelensky criminal regime, wanted to negotiate with the Russians, the Russians won't believe anything that they say. And so the Russians will sit down to negotiate. Sure, no problem. They'll talk. But no agreement will be reached because the Russians don't trust the Zelensky regime. The Russians no longer trust Europeans because, after all, there was the Minsk II agreement, which would have created lasting peace. And the Russians were trying to implement the Minsk agreement, the Minsk II agreement. But the Europeans never pushed the Ukrainians to do it. The Europeans didn't want the Minsk II agreement implemented. And so the Russians don't trust the Europeans. And so what will happen is that the war will grind on. Ukraine will fall completely to Russia. Russia will take Ukraine apart. And there will be a small ethnic Ukraine state that will remain a rump Ukraine that will be poor, that will be demographically broken because all the best people will have left and fled to Western Europe. This small, broken, rump Ukraine will be a shithole, quite frankly. And eastern and southern Ukraine, what is called today eastern and southern Ukraine, I'm talking Kharkov, Poltava, um, Lugansk, uh, Donetsk, uh, uh, what you got, um, Mariupol, um, Kherson, uh, Zaporozhia, Odessa, all of these regions. 
they will all become part of Russia. Probably also uh, Dnepropetrovsk, they will all become part of Russia, of the Russian Federation, because after all, they are ethnically Russian, the people who live there, the, and the people who fled, the ones who fled were ethnically Ukrainian. The ones who have remained are ethnically Russian or pro-Russian. And so they will remain, they will get their Russian passport, they will become a part of Russia, and Russia, what it's going to do, it's going to pump a lot of money into these regions to bring up the economies quickly, um, not because the Russians are such great guys, but because the Russians realize that if they put a lot of money into the infrastructure of these regions that they have conquered, and they treat the population well, then that population will think that this was a good thing, they will feel loyal towards the Kremlin, and the, um, the region will grow. A lot of people will have lots of babies, and all of a sudden, you're going to have a vibrant part of Russia. Uh, I think that that's basically what's going to happen. And I, I, think, I think at this point, for the reasons I mentioned before, insofar as the, uh, the attack on um, Yavoriv, which scared off the West, the Pentagon, and Brussels, where NATO is located, I think that because of that, NATO will simply decide to just give up on Ukraine because they will realize that militarily they can't go in, that they would be hammered, it would be humiliating and devastating. And so they're going to turn their backs on Ukraine. And um, all the promises of the West towards Ukraine, that they'd always stand by them and all this bullshit, just words. It'll mean nothing. The Europeans will be going cold and hungry without light, without electricity this winter. And they'll be begging the Russians to please, please, please come back. And the Russians are just going to ignore them. You know, so it's going to be just uh, misery for Europe, misery for this rump Ukraine, and the situation will be extremely beneficial to the people in Ukraine who are going to be conquered by the Russians. Because, like I said, the Russians, it's not that they're nice guys. N none of these people are nice guys, but they're pragmatic, the Russians. The Russians are pragmatists, unlike the Europeans. The Europeans, for their stupid ideological reasons, decided to um, go to economic war with Russia, and they're going to pay the price. And the Russians, very pragmatically, they realize we are going to conquer this territory, and we are going to treat these people really, really well, and spend a lot of money on them, you know, buy them flowers and chocolate, so that they get in bed with us and seal the deal. You see? That's what's going on. You have one side, the Russians, who you can hate them, you can call them this, that, the other, but they are pragmatists. They look at things as they are, and they look at a problem and they try to solve the problem to their advantage. Whereas the Europeans, they are the lapdogs of the Americans, and they follow this idiotic ideology of neoliberalism, of... Um, you know, the, the, this globalism and climate bullshit and all the rest of it, this green crap. And by the way, I worked in the, in the green energy sector. It's all ideological bullshit. It's all a big farce. It's all a big con job. I can tell you that for a fact. I worked in, in solar energy. I know that bottom line, solar energy, wind energy is far worse for the environment than uh, gas, much less nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is the clear, cleanest energy around. 
but all this green propaganda bullshit, well, it's the reason that Europe is going to go cold this winter. Okay, so they've got nobody to blame but themselves. Uh, sorry for ranting and going all over the place, but I figured that your audience wants to get a clear sense of where this is all going. Yeah, no, no rules here. All good stuff. And I, I just real quick, there's a raging debate in alt media, independent media, on you know, there's talk of of Putin uh, and, and Xi in China working to some degree with Davos and the World Economic Forum, uh, and then others argue that there's been a complete separation. Uh, and that this BRICS multipolar world has to separate, you know, is completely separate and having genuine resistance against uh, Davos. What's your thought on that? Uh, look, uh, uh, Xi and Putin don't give a shit about any foreign organization unless it helps them because they are nationalists. See, Xi Jinping cares about Chinese. He doesn't give a shit about the Russians. He's friends with the Russians because it helps them. Okay. And Putin cares about Russians. He doesn't give a shit about the Chinese because he only cares insofar as the Chinese help him and his people, okay? Which is a pragmatic and rational approach. Now, these Davos people and whatnot, whatever thing that they do with, with the different organizations, it's to the benefit, the long-term benefit of Russia and China, okay? Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin would be friends with the devil if long-term it helped their own people, because that's their priority, as it should be. They're not impressed, or they're not interested, rather, in impressing other people or, or playing some ideological game. Whereas the World Economic Forum, all these fools, that's what they care about. You know, Justin Trudeau, he doesn't give a shit about Canadians. He cares about impressing his buddies at the World Economic Forum and being part of the club, see? And that's why Putin and Xi Jinping are effective leaders and Justin Trudeau is not. It's as simple as. And so, and, and anybody saying that, oh, you know, Putin and Xi are betraying their people by negotiating with Davos Proud or whatever, that's just naive. They're, they're just doing what's best for their people. If it means that they have to negotiate with the Davos Proud for a bit, sure, they'll do that. If they have to do something else, they'll do something else. If they have to turn their backs on the Davos crowd, they'll do that. There isn't any ideolo ideology. Ideology is for children, grown-ups, adults. They don't care about ideology. They don't care who's popular or who's this or that. The other. All they care about is achieving their objectives. And that's what Putin is doing, and that's what Xi Jinping is doing. And their objectives, if you understand that what they want is the betterment of their people, and you take their statements at their word, because they keep saying this all the time. And, you know, this, what I'm telling you about the motivations of these men, they say this all the time. And you have to believe people when they say stuff like this. They're not lying. They're telling the truth. See, it's only in the West that they're lying <laughs> because they don't care about their own people. But that's for a different conversation. Yep. Yep, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know if you have any final thought for us, as well as letting us know the best places to to find you online and uh, any any of your different uh, projects. Yeah, uh, right now I'm. Uh, you can find me at Gonzalo Lira Two on YouTube and uh, on Twitter at uh, Gonzalo Lira nineteen sixty eight. I've I haven't been uh, tweeting as of late because I had a suspension for a week. <laughs> But uh, the suspension ends on Sunday, I think. So I'll be back tweeting there. 
And uh, yeah, in, in a little bit, I'll be releasing a, a book that I think is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, but um, yeah, you know, I'm just hanging around the internet. That's me. All right. I'll, I'll include all the links in the description so people can subscribe and, and find you. And spasiba for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you so much for having me on. You know, sorry for if I ranted too long, but uh, I, I hope that your audience enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.